Hey friends, my name's Luke Norsworthy. I'm the host of the show. It's been a minute. I'm still here, but I've just been, uh, you know, taking a little time. I mean, I've been doing this thing for uh, years. It's like a, it's like a decade, honestly. It's been a long time, and uh, you know, I just need a little space, a little time. But uh, I've recorded this podcast with Dr. John Delani, and I'm very excited to share it with you. Uh, John is the author of the new book, Building a Non-Anxious Life. He is, uh, like, he does stuff to help people walk through, uh, like, tough times. And if you're a fan of the Dave Ramsey world, which uh, I think in the podcast um, we talk about how I need to know more about it. Um, but uh, John's on there. Uh, John writes books. And uh, anyway, you're going to love this conversation. Really great stuff about anxiety and overall just a fun conversation. So you'll get to that in a second. But uh, again, I've uh, been on a uh, break and uh, got a lot of stuff scheduled for the year. And uh, I'm just going to say this right now. Um, I'm, I'm planning on releasing a book in April. And that has taken up a lot of my time. It's the... Uh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done to, to do this book. Uh, also, it is uh, something I'm extremely, extremely excited to share with you. Uh, I've started to get, uh, you know, a handful of friends uh, who've read it, and uh, that's just a really crazy experience for me. Um, but I look forward to having it available for you in a couple months. Uh, the book is, uh, you know, as of right now, uh, the title is How to Love the Life That You Already Have. Uh, it's a guide to become the person that your life is demanding for you to be. And um, anyway, uh, it'll be out soon, and I'm excited for, uh, to share it with y'all. And uh, that's kind of the reason I've been a little bit more MIA, uh, as the kids would say on the podcast. But um, we're back today, and Dr. Jel- Don, what's his, what's his name? Dr. John Delaney is uh, is a great one to um, to hear from. And uh, uh, Baxter, I think we mentioned this. We had some technical difficulty. Uh, I had to restart this thing. But um, funny thing is, a couple years ago, uh, a friend of mine named Jen Rogers, her husband, Mark Rogers, is um, was a buddy of mine from college who, who passed away. And uh, after Mark passed away, uh, I saw on Jen's Instagram something about one of John's books. And so I started following him. And I really started to like his stuff about uh, anxiety. I found it to be really helpful personally and also professionally as uh, teaching and preaching on the stuff. And uh, I'll kind of tell you the story about how John and I got connected, but uh, it was kind of a crazy story. And um, I mean, crazy because he, he had been listening to the podcast. And so that was, uh, you know, serendipitous or ironic or whatever. Um, anyway, nevertheless, here's the podcast. Thanks for listening. And uh, here we go. Can you give us the thumbs up? I can just start talking like we're on the podcast then. We're up. There it is. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. It is my honor today to be joined by Dr. John Delani. Welcome to the show, sir. What's up, dude? Hey, man. Um, uh, there's a funny story. Um, we started this podcast and then it fell apart because I don't know how to work my own equipment. And uh, so we're going to just, this is the second intro and we're not going to pretend like it's not the second intro because it's not. And so we're just jumping right in. But I think it's important for your audience to know, A, I said a whole bunch of nice things about you that I'm, I'm for sure not going to repeat. And no. that I've been listening to your show for so long. So this is like a highlight of my, uh, as my son says, my YouTube career, whatever that wow. means. Wow. So thank you, man. Okay, but, but here, I'm going to say it again. 
Um, I followed you on social media and I slid into your DMs, which some might say I'm too old for that. I, I disagree. I protest disagree. that. We disagree. both disagree. I slid, I slid into your DMs and then you told me this story and I was like, oh my goodness, like this is pretty crazy. Um, and then I was like, well, then you have to come on the podcast. So let's make this happen. And uh, I read the book and here's another story. I read the book. You talk about Randy Harris. And I was like, I didn't know you knew Randy. Harris. I, I, I don't understand how you're connected to ACU. I've gone, I've tried to scour the internet. I, here's what I do know. I referenced you in a sermon. I was doing a series on mental health. I talked about anxiety. You've, you've said a few words about anxiety. I mentioned a few of those words in a sermon and a friend of mine named Kelly Childry walks up to me and she oh, says, <laughs> you know, you lost a ton of credibility when you quoted John in your sermon. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, tell me more. Tell me more. So she did tell me more. She told me some stories. uh, Oh, jeez. That's the problem is, like, the statute of limitations has not run out on all of those stories. Mm -hmm. And most of them are probably true to some extent. Yeah, Yeah. no. So uh, Randy saved my life. Um, Yeah. He plays a pretty pivotal role in me going from point A to point B. And same with with Richard and... um, and uh, Mark Phillips, those three, those three men played a pretty hmm. pivotal role in me uh, being here. So, um, yeah, well, good, good stuff. Randy Harris is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, he's a uh, friend of the show. If you've listened for a while, you've heard Randy a few times. Um, uh, Richard Beck is actually the reason I started the podcast, an excuse to get him on the podcast to talk about uh, the authenticity of faith. And uh, he'll be back on. He's got a, uh, the paperback version of Hunting Magic Eels, which, which comes out in a few weeks. So he'll be back on the podcast. Love that guy. So we both have a lot of love for those people and ACU. Uh, you, did you work like in the student affairs or something while you were yeah, there? Yeah, I was associate dean there. So I, I, oh. um, I, housing reported up through me. Um, uh, I, so I was always in either dealing with student conduct issues or dealing with kids in hospitals or sexual assault investigations or when there was some tragedies there, we were involved in some of that stuff. And then there was the day-to-day, um, my roommate tried to kill me, I'm drinking too much, and just the, just the day-to-day kind of stuff that, that I would say 95% of the world doesn't know is going on behind closed doors for folks who work in housing yeah. or in student affairs in general. But yeah, that was the world. It sounds like a terrible job. Uh, I'm just gonna be really honest. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty great. Yeah, I don't know why you would sign up for that. But then again, I'm a pastor, and so I guess I (laughs) did did the same thing. I can only imagine in the round every couple of exactly. Yes, the more mercy me that's included, the better. (laughs) You (laughs) okay? uh, Speaking of that, you have a reference. uh, The new book is uh, building a non anxious life. Great book, Uh, and you talk about something. Uh, uh, secondhand, uh, oh, what is the language? Uh, secondhand trauma, where you talk about people like uh, police officers, therapists, nurses, and you also included ministers. ministers. And I was just like, oh my goodness, I have never thought of what I do, which would be akin to the job that you just described, where you're carrying a lot of secondhand trauma. Is is that the right use of the word? What you would yeah, it, have done in that? Enough. There's secondary traumatic stress. There's 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 vicarious trauma. You can call it a number of things, but yeah, you've got it. Yeah. Okay. Yesterday, I'm uh, right before service, and one of my friends, Holly, she is leading the communion meditation, and she leans over to me, and she goes, I don't know how you do this every week. And I say to her what has been very true in that it has gotten harder to preach every week, and I have more of like a 
uh, like holy hangover, like emotional hangover the day after preaching. Uh, there's no alcohol consumed on Sunday. Um, but I have this like emotional hangover the next day, which I didn't have before. And I've never been able to articulate it. But I feel like what you described is like, there's more weight that I, I know I'm carrying from all of these other conversations and people and all, the, all that goes into it that I didn't have the ability to diagnose before. And I thought that term makes sense for what I'm experiencing. So yeah, the it stems from a conversation I was having with one of my good friends, Dr. Lynn Jennings. She teaches at the med school at, at Texas Tech, and we were talking about trauma, and it was old. I, I call it old me, which is a decade ago me, where I used to lecture experts on how I knew their stuff more than they did kind of thing. And so we were sitting yeah. down having coffee, and um, God, dude, I was the worst. I was so annoying. Uh, we were having a discussion about trauma, and she was researching trauma, and I was giving her the A's and the B's and the C's of it, and she said... Well, that's cute, John, but you know there's a whole wide range. And she said, you know, trauma's cumulative. And for whatever reason, that that word was a light bulb to me. And I was like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. Unless you um, are, like, at war or something and where you're seeing, like, comrade after comrade after comrade pass away or whatever. And she said, no, John. And then the way she explained it was very simple. So the analogy I like to give people is if you were hit by a bus or you experienced a traumatic thing, or um, your parents had a big divorce, whatever. That is somebody dropping a brick in your backpack that you carry all the time. Mm -hmm. If you are somebody who, for a living, um, experiences other people's pain alongside them, or they come to you with challenges, attorneys, doctors, anybody in the medical profession, pastors. um, No, we don't think about this very much, but very few people call pastors just to tell them they're having a great day. They always call them with, hey, this is going on, so-and-so sick, can you pray for me here, I don't have enough money for it. It's always a thing that they're struggling with, and that's kind of the job, but the way she described it was, it's like putting pebbles in your backpack. Just, It's not a brick, you're just helping somebody out, and then you get to hang up the phone and go back to your air-conditioned life, but over time, the weight in those backpacks is the same. If you yeah. have a backpack full of little pebbles that you're carrying around, and pastors don't often realize they're doing that therapists don't realize they're doing that and like you mentioned you just find yourself snapping at loved ones not wanting to get into the pulpit again not wanting to go to another funeral and it's this cumulative weight and your body finally says dude i'm out i'm out yeah uh one of the themes in the book is the idea that the body keeps score um it's a concept that uh, many have discussed before uh but a lot of us have missed like the significance of the fact that like the body carries that stuff with us. And some of us like to run and numb that stuff and others just want to control it or whatever we do. But like the, the body's holding on to that. And I, Maybe one of the central themes of the book is the idea that anxiety doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It's your body trying to get your attention. Um, it, it seems like that is a massive flip and and switch in the way that many of us see anxiety to see this actually actually as a warning sign that our body is giving us for our benefit not just to destroy our our sanity how do we get to that understanding well so bessel van der kolk is the one who coined the phrase the body keeps the score which i think is great um much of that book is around really heavy trauma so I go back 10 years ago when I was sitting in like a nerd academic conference and it was somebody talking about the genetics of ADHD. And at one point, the person, and maybe it was 13 years ago, at one point that one of the presenters said, hey, by the way, this cannot be a totally genetic issue. And the room got kind of quiet. And, and he said, that's just not the way genetics work. They don't all flip on at the same time. There has to be more at play here. 
And I remember leading that session asking myself, and this was the seed that ended up in this book, what if the ADHD brain is right? What if it's doing everything it can to keep somebody as safe as it knows how to do based on experiences mm-hmm. and the way it was brought, the way they were brought up and, and, and all that and genetics and all that. Well, that led me to on a 10 year adventure, try to figure out why is everybody depressed and anxious and OCD and ADHD and burning out all at the same time. And that led me to, Oh, what if our anxiety's right? It's much easier to go to the doctor and say, hey, this alarm system's out of control. Will you shut it off? They can give you stuff to shut shut it off. The harder question is to say, no, 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 what if it's right? Uh-huh. What lives have we created for ourselves that our body's anxiety alarms are going off all the time? It's the, and they're not, I'm not broken in any way. In fact, they're working perfectly. Yeah. Um, that's a much more um, fraught conversation because then you got to go, you got to swim hard upstream then. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be easier for us to just you know say, I need to get rid of this anxiety or to see anxiety as a problem to solve instead of anxiety pointing to the problems that we actually need to address. And, you know, it's usually the thing beneath the thing. And for a long time, I've, I've seen anxiety as, hey, this is, there's a problem out there you need to fix um, about anxiety instead of going, no, 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 anxiety is telling you it's actually good for you. Um, so you make that, that switch 10 years ago. It's a journey for you to figure that out. You're very autobiographical in this book about the way that you experience that personally and living this very frenetic, uh, overextended, um, maybe not the most balanced life as you would describe it. <laughs> is that a fair way to put it? Uh, honestly, I remember thinking, Balance is for um, complete like loser. It's like only <laughs> only only like yeah. suckers and people who are lazy cowards seek balance. I mm-hmm. seek to win. Right? Yeah. What what a what an asinine way to live your life. Yes. But that's that was what it was, man. Mm-hmm. Seeking balance was quitting. Probably shouldn't amen the part where you were saying this is my old me, not the healthy me. Okay. Um, also, also side note, uh, my dad, psychologist, is in town for the weekend. You know, I'm having this conversation. Hey, yeah, I, you know, I've had to work to make my sleep at 42. You know, be what I want it to be. Like it just doesn't happen like naturally like it used to. But like usually, you know, more often than not, it's like a good night's sleep for the most part. And I'm saying this to him. He's in town, and then I wake up at two o'clock in the morning, and I'm like crap, I can't go back to sleep. This is Saturday or Sunday morning at this point. And so I wake up and I'm reading your book, which I'm like, crap, this is not the book to read at two in the morning. (laughs) Cause I'm like, ah, geez, I need to find a different book. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's what what Calvin and Hobbes is for. Yeah. But you're talking about your experience where you had the same, like that was your normal. Like you're waking up at two in the morning, looking at your phone, just overextended and the journey to kind of put your life back together. Um, you have six, six spokes to the wheel. Um, let me read them. It's reality, connection, freedom, health and healing, mindfulness and belief. How do those six become the wheels? Like each of the spokes of the wheel. You don't, you don't use the metaphor of spokes and wheels. So I'm just inserting that for you. You're welcome. Well, I, I try. Here, here's what I try to do. Um, a couple of things have been clear to me um, since I've left higher ed. So I worked in academics for 20 years and in dean of students roles and as a professor. And I didn't realize it until I, I left. I left to work for a media company now and to you know write books and do podcasts and radio shows and stuff. And sure. I didn't realize how much I, I spent 20 years with some of the greatest people on planet Earth, some of the most brilliant minds trying to solve some really profound challenges. 
And I didn't realize how often we talk over people's head and how we had created a language that was almost exclusive for being inside the academy. And so what I try to do with this book is, A, I'm not writing a book for Huberman. That dude is so brilliant. I'm not writing a book for Peter Tia. Those guys, their brains are a thousand X mine, and I consume their stuff, but they're speaking Italian, and they're speaking Italian for guys like me who speak Italian. I'm, this book was for folks who don't read books very often. And so what I try to do is to distill all the diagnostic criteria and all of the, my personal experience and then just the countless people I've sat with over the years and say, okay, if I had to, if somebody's anxiety alarms are going off and I had to say, I want you to point in one of these six areas mm-hmm. and I want you to check here before you do anything else. Um, what would they be? And they distill down into these areas. And so that was kind of the genesis of it. If I could give somebody a roadmap from an anxious existence, an anxious life, you're always buzzing that low-level hum. And I also think, like, psychometrically, that um, anxiety and depression are on the same trend line. They, they work together. They're not different, they're not different yeah. universes as, they're, as they are drawn up in the DSM. And so I think that like, asking your body, what are you trying to protect me from, is a much more instructive question than... How do I force myself back to sleep at 2 a.m.? Instead yep. of asking, hey, my body just woke me up at 2. What is it sensing that, I don't, that I'm not making connections with yet? That, one of those is a, is a harder question to answer. Yeah, for me personally, what we should focus on is me just going back to sleep because this is not a counseling <laughs> session for me. Um, but more importantly than my own problems, which I'm not here to deal with, um, that's what I have excessive exercise for. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, you said anxiety and depression are related. Give me a thumbnail on that because I think we just brushed past that and not everyone uh, has, has read literature that would help them see the connection between anxiety and depression. I, th- I mean, I think the easiest way to think of it is anxiety is your body detecting threats in the ecosystem usually out in front of you and it's going to gin up the fight or flight or freeze or fawn reflex and it's going to send your body into a it's go time baby and it was designed for a world that is very different than our own so i think we all know that i think eventually your body says hey that's not working there's nobody to fight here you can't keep fighting these emails or you won't turn your phone off or you get done with your social work job or your minister job and then you go watch law and order svu and on your drive home you're listening to a murder podcast we i don't know how to stop this we're just going to shut the machine off right we're going to just put a pillow over it and i think that's where we get to more dysthymic behaviors right so more depressive behaviors and so they tend to work in in tandem and I don't like I like looking at the human experience as opposed to oh you're a this and you fall into this vertical and we're just going to treat this vertical. That's just not how the human experience actually plays out over time. Yeah, uh, one of the things that you don't like is allowing the diagnosis that we receive to be determinative of our of our identity, which has become somewhat um, common. Uh, That's just our life. That's our world. Yeah. Yeah. What's so dysfunctional about that when we let the diagnosis determine? Who we are. I mean, I think there's, it's, it's dysfunctional on every level. I think it's dysfunctional. With, I, I, let me say this. Um, I think the, a diagnostic is good for naming the dragon. It's yeah. good to know you're not nuts. It's good to know that you're not having a, a, a completely unique experience that no one's ever had before. So it's good. I think diagnoses are also good for researchers to talk to other researchers so you can sure. have some apples to apples. And I think it's good in this crappy insurance world we live in that um for for practitioners to get paid yeah it is not helpful when someone says you have a this there's some clear literature that you become you lean into your label 
right? You lean into those things that people tag you with. When that teacher in third grade said, yeah, you're just dumb at math. You're good at this. You just inch that way, right? Or when people say, yeah, you just are always this. You can't ever. You kind of inch that way. And so um, I don't like the self-fulfilling prophecy of diagnostics. I also don't like the absolutism. Um, I like saying that they're a context, not an excuse. The number, of, especially as I've gotten older and had large people, large groups of people working for me, people come in and say, hey, I can't be on time. I can't do this thing because I've got ADHD. I'm not going to be able to do this because it makes my OCD bad. What I always tell them is, man, that's a context. You're right. You, your brain's trying to take care of you in a different way than maybe the other people in this room. But you still got to be at work at 9 o'clock. You still got to get your reports done. That kid that you said you'll take to the hospital needs to get to the hospital. So we got to figure that out. And so I don't like the built-in, well, I'm throwing my hands up because it's just the way this is, because I don't believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about uh, six, uh, six choices we have to make. Reality, connection, freedom, health and healing, mindfulness, belief. When you're talking to those six, which is there one that usually comes up first more than the others? Um, the two that come up immediately are always choosing reality. And I think we have yeah. a culture that really works hard for us not to be present with the realities of our life. Whether um, I, that's just how those teenagers are, that's not true, right? Or, yeah, yeah you just, you just, your body falls apart as you, that's not true either. Or, yeah, marriage just, just slowly get less intimate and, that's not true either. I think we, uh, yeah, you just you have to you have to take out a car loan. Uh, you can't just not have a car payment. Like, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every kid has to have their own bathroom and bedroom. Otherwise, you're a terrible American parent, right? So, some of these reality things that aren't true. Um, I think we live in a world that is constantly distracted and constantly not tethered to reality. And then the second one, obviously, that comes up all the time is we've created the loneliest generation in human history. Yeah. And um, you've talked about this a lot on your show, but it's just our bodies can't. Let me put it this way. Your body would be failing you top to bottom if it recognized that you were lonely. Not that you weren't surrounded by people. Most of us are these days. And not that you had a bunch of followers on some internet box. But that it knew you don't have anybody you can tell the truth to. Your body would be failing you if it let you sleep all night. It would be failing you if it let you have a deep, intimate, like sexual relationship with your wife or your husband. Because it's not time for sex. It's time to not die because you're alone. And if you're alone, we're not going to make it out of this thing. So it's fundamental to to a a regulated nervous system is other people. And so those two... You can't have any of the other stuff if you don't have people and you don't, you don't trade in reality, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll get to reality in just one second. Uh, I was reading the chapter on uh, connection, and you do the thing about um, in prison, you get in trouble, you go to uh, solitary confinement. And I'm reading and going, dang it, John. Like, I literally have that paragraph written for my next book. And I was like, dang it, John. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not even, like, remotely different. It is literally, like, the same setup and flow. And I'm like... Thanks. I appreciate you you writing that. Oh, just use it, dude. Nobody's going to read my book. You're good. People mm. read your book. Ah, that's a that's <laughs> yours. Uh, that's very generous. Uh, the copy I have of your book already has number one national bestselling <laughs> author on it. So, uh, yeah, we just stuck it on there. We made that up. We yeah. That. Okay. Well, then maybe I'll make that up as well for mine. Um, nevertheless, uh, it seems that the plight of humanity and you guys at um, at Ramsey did your own like social uh, research. Yeah, we did for, a huge study here. Yeah. 
And it, it, it's all, all the information is saying the same thing, that we are lonelier now than we've ever been. And a lot of people talk about the problem with masculinity. Personally, I feel like the centerpiece of the problem of masculinity is disconnection of people having no one that they can talk to. Um, you tell a story, um, you had a book that came out, big launch, things went great on it. And then you're in a hotel room and you didn't have anyone to call uh, in that moment. And I feel like a lot of people live in that moment where it's like, not only do I have no one to call when things are bad, but even more so no one to call when things are good. Uh, if you're talking to a guy and he says, hey, I, I don't really have connection. I don't have friends. I have to choose connection. What do you tell him? Here, here are some steps to take to make that choice. Yeah, I mean, I that story was really tough because I did have guys to call. Yeah. Um, I've got some of the greatest friends on planet Earth. The thing was, I hadn't called them in the last two months, six months, nine months, ten months, and I didn't have a tool in my toolkit to say, hey, dude, I haven't called you in a long time. I just need to celebrate with somebody. Hmm. Um, or, hey, I don't have time to, do, to go to our normal breakfast because I've got something that's more important than you, and that's a blog post. Hey, guys, I'm not going to be able to join back in on this text thread or call you guys back because I've got something more important, which is um, a book edit, right? And so I, th- I think my friends want me to do well. I know they do, in fact. Yeah. Um, I just created the story that I got, had nobody. And then I did not have a psychology for calling friends when things went well. I, I just want to be like, oh, shucks, I have a good team, uh, whatever, whatever. And so, yeah, I remember calling my mom. Dave Ramsey called. It was the first person who called me and was just screaming on the phone, like, congratulations. And it was pretty surreal. And then I called my wife and I called my mom. We went to this big book event in some strange city. And then I went home and there was nobody. And uh-huh. so the reverse engineer has been, um, I'm going to have some commitments. And you said we don't have people to talk to. I've, men all across the country bristle at me when I talk about that. And I actually have come to believe that's fair, fair. But you have to have a group of men that you have a common purpose with. That y'all go do stuff together, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do. I, I, I push back on this early, and I, I'm okay with it now. That um, like overgeneralized, no, no question. But that women often speak kneecap to kneecap and men shoulder to shoulder. That's fine, whatever it is. And so I, I think about guys. Another ACU guy, um, Kevin Roberts, who's um, a close, close buddy of mine. Who used to have a group of people over to his house. They they would put their names in a in a bowl or a hat draw the name out, and then one month later, all these guys would descend on somebody's house, fix the car, change the tires, paint the backyard, shovel sand, whatever. And who was still there at 2 o'clock, they would put their name in a hat, and everybody came. Here's what happened over the course of a year or two. One guy knew a whole bunch about electricity, like how to put a plug in, and kind of everybody kind of learned how that worked. One guy was good at painting or knew a trick or two about plumbing. And over time, they all did some stuff together, and they all laughed together, and somebody had all the pizza and drinks or whatever together, and they saved thousands of dollars together. Wow. And then it gave them permission for one guy to go, hey, dude, I'm not all right. And you, you can only get there after some shared experiences or if you're forced into AA or if you pay a therapist, right? So mm-hmm. I like some of those men in my life, like Michael Lewis, like Kevin Roberts, who have said, Hey, we're just going to get over being weird. I love you. I think I told that story in the book, too. The time Kevin told me on the phone, I love you. And I was like, uh, nope. <laughs> nope. Um, I, uh, I, re- I, I do not accept. <laughs> I, I love the Astros. I love my Basset Hound. And I love um, my wife and kids. You need to just back it up a notch. And then um, 
my experience in Lubbock, Texas, working with the police department, man, just doing death notification after death notification. I, dude, I don't, I, don't, I don't ever get off the phone without telling my friends I love them, especially my male friends. And so yeah. uh, I'm just not going to – I'm not – going to be another person who has to say i wish i could have had one more minute just to let him know and so um dude i'm just i'm just tired of being dramatic about it and i'm tired of like being like oh it's kind of weird you know what's what's real weird is wishing you could have told somebody that you loved them and so i'm just dude i'm headed straight into the middle of the awkwardness it's just going to be awkward and weird um but men especially go find a group of people to do a common thing with whether that's go play a game go fishing together paint somebody's house go do a thing and if you keep showing up and you keep showing up and you keep showing up somebody's gonna go hey man my kids like got in trouble for drinking can y'all help and now you're in it right yep i could not agree any more than uh i do right now with what you just said uh no need to add on but i strongly agree with it uh you said that you didn't have a psychology of calling a friend to celebrate at that time if you were gonna like articulate what a psychology of celebration is right now with friends how would you do that? Uh, it was my own freaking ego, dude. Um, I mean, what do you, how are you supposed to call somebody and tell them that the number two talk show host on planet Earth just called you and told you your book is number one in the United States? Dude, I don't... <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to be a heavy metal singer. I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a context for this. Yeah. And so what am I supposed to do? Call my, one of my best friends, Todd, who works at a bank, and be like, hey, man... Uh, you know what? Todd wept for me, by the way, when I did call him. Hmm. He's like, dude, you've worked so hard for this. Call, mm-hmm. I, you, you and I have a mutual friend, John King. I called John. John came as close to crying as I think that guy is humanly possible. He was so happy for me. But mm-hmm. I was so, my ego was so big that I thought, oh, I can't call these guys and burden them with this. Mm-hmm. And um, they, I don't want to ruin their night. They're probably having their, you know, what a, I just painted this picture that nobody cared about me. And it mm-hmm. wasn't true. I thought I only had value if something was really bad and they could help me with it. I didn't realize that mutual cheering for one another was also really an essential part of loving somebody. Hmm. And so now I've, my closest friends, I've got f- friends that I can say the, the bad stuff to. Like, hey man, my marriage isn't so great right now. I just lost a friend. Uh, mom's got cancer, that kind of thing. I have friends that, uh, and those same people, I could tell them really amazing stuff. Hey guys, I got number one again. It's awesome. Congratulations. Um, and then I've got folks that I can tell the real, real dark stuff too. Hey, this happened to me when I was a kid and I haven't told anybody. And um, would y'all just sit in this with me? Um, one of my friends called recently and said, hey man, my, I had to pick my mom up out of the garage. She's got Alzheimer's real bad. And it was a harrowing, heavy conversation. He said, I just need someone, I don't need you to fix anything. I've got it, but I just need to tell you. And we just sat in it, man. And that's what love is, and that's what friendship is. And men need that desperately, desperately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like the, the research has shown that women have high degrees of loneliness as well. It seems that men are maybe even more lonely. Uh, I'm not the PhD over here, so that's just my reading of the statistics. But it seems that all across the board, people are lonely. We all need that. We need someone... Uh, it's weird as you're describing uh, because I would think it'd be easier to call someone to tell them the celebratory news than it is to tell them the dark news. And it is a great picture for me to see that uh, for you, it, it seems easier to say the hard stuff, like the, the things are bad or dark, uh, than to, sell, to tell like the celebratory thing. Is that, did well, I? It was, yeah, I mean, when's the last time you called somebody and said, hey, I just want to let you know I, I rocked today's sermon, I crushed it? 
Okay, that's never happened, ever. Exactly, right? Or, yeah. Um, yeah. hey, like, I had a really great jiu-jitsu practice today. When's the last time you called a male buddy and told him that? Okay, I've, I have done that, for sure. Uh, you probably uh, have. That's I, <laughs> yeah. I, I've called people, I, I have a, a friend or two that I will call and tell good things about jiu-jitsu, uh, but I've never called and said, man, I killed that sermon. That was awesome. Like, I've... Okay. So, yeah. so maybe using the, uh, like, the muscly... Um, yeah fisticuffs one is is easier for us to enter into um i, I remember okay. it's about a decade ago tony robbins was the one who said our culture is addicted to problems that we enter every room but first and, <laughs> and, and when i think about yeah. it he's so right yeah. nobody nobody walks into a room and is like have you seen how beautiful it is out there um they say man did you get the tweets over the weekend did you hear about the indictments did you hear what's yeah. going on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. believe it? That's just that's the way we communicate. So nobody walks in and goes, "Oh my gosh, my kid got the play." Because if they do, everyone's like, "Oh, shut up about your stupid kid." Yeah, like you're, you're bragging. Mine. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. kid has hand, foot, and mouth illness. <laughs> like, ooh, you and your stupid little play. That's so. And they make up a string of words. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and even getting into the more politically like like dicey conversations about privilege and about oh, it must be nice. And we just have a culture that says, "I don't want to hear about the good stuff going on in your life," but. If, yeah. it's neg- yeah, yeah. if it's negative, let me let me know. Let me know about it, right? Because either you deserve it, or uh, well, let me tell you about my negative stuff. And that's just that's just the that's how we traffic together. Yeah, I mean that that that's spot on. That is definitely spot on. Uh, it is easier to complain about what's going on than to say positive stuff that's happening in your life. Yeah, that's that's spot on. Um, okay, let me it should not. It shouldn't be that way. By the way, we've just decided that's the way it is. It, yeah, and if you have healthy relationships, then you can have positive and and negative and it's not just like oh israel and palestine that's really dark like it's not that sort of but like you know my kid is struggling this is happening in my marriage that sort of conversation one of the lines that i i've said a few times and i think my friends get sick of me saying this but the friendships that you keep are the friendships that you keep on the calendar and as you get older like it's easier and easier to let those things kind of drift away but you have to make that commitment and i love your story about once a month we put our name in the hat or the bucket and then we just come over and fix stuff cuz it's just an appointment to spend time together and but but hey our marriages work the same it, there's nothing worse than unhollywoodizing your your marriage like you got to put yeah. sex on the calendar when you have kids you just do yeah and i remember a buddy of mine who's a therapist he was like Couples really have a choice. You can plan it or just not do it. Which one, do you, which one do you wish? And of course, we all wish that every time I'd come home from work, that it would be like the music would swell. That's just not how it is because there's throw up everywhere and kids like, yeah. peeing in the corner. and what. Yeah. So I think our life, um, we, have to, I, we have to be intentional, man. Yeah. And I wonder if the chief sin of our time is a lack of intentionality. Like, I'm just going to choose to prioritize you. I'm going to put yep. you on the most important thing in my life right now, which is a calendar, which I hate that that's the way it is, but it is. And so I'm going to put you on the calendar and you will have a prime spot in my heart. And uh, I'm not going to budge on that. Yeah, no. Uh, intentionality seems to be a major theme in the book. The idea, anxiety is your body telling you to do something and you actually have to do it. And one of those things is to deal with reality. Right. You you posted uh, okay so for those who don't know John has like this call in thing where people just call him up um, I think in the it's book like Dr. Laura show or old Dr. Phil show except they yeah it's, it's a modern version of that and you have way better hair than Dr. Phil just way better <laughs> hair way, way more tattoos that's right. yeah uh, both I, I haven't checked either of their total tattoo count but I'm just gonna take your word for that John uh, I don't need to know all that uh, for either of you but you I, I think I've, t- I've taken this I think I actually put it in a book but you tell a story about a guy 
excuse me, the woman calls in and talks about a father who has been functionally absent. Like he doesn't give her his cell phone number and she can email with him. And then she wasn't allowed to meet her step-siblings because her father said that they didn't want to meet her. And basically the guy has an affair 30 years ago and then he's tried to cover it up. And he never was real to the fact that he failed as a husband to be faithful to his wife in one moment. And so what happened is that he ended up failing his daughter for decades because he couldn't own up to the fact that, yeah, my life is me as someone who had an affair. I had a child because of this and therefore I couldn't be present to my very own daughter. And now I failed her for decades because I couldn't own up to being a failure of a husband for a weekend or however long it was. And it seems that like the idea of reality is like, you have to take this honest assessment of really what's going on Uh, in, in the book. You have a very confessional say, Hey, this is where I am. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in a a substantial amount of debt. Um, I'm over, you know, overly busy. I'm disengaged here, whatever. And, what is like the first step to go, wait a minute, I I have run away from reality in this part of my life. My anxiety is telling me something. I don't know where to start looking, but like if we're going to try to like sleuth through all the stuff that we haven't been real about, like where do we even start? Um, I think it starts with like being really practical, like pulling out a a sheet of notebook paper or a yellow pad. And I, I even suggest you not do it on a computer because I think you need to be completely lasered in. Um, and a lot of our distraction technology is like a, it's like a, a, a Xanax that's in the air. It's so easy to just pull you out of these hard moments. Choose reality is what is the state of my marriage? Mm-hmm. Who am I not telling the truth to right now? Um, what is the state of my finance? And when you ask what's the state of your finance, most people say fine or terrible. That's not a good question. The good question is who do I owe money to? Because here's another one. Your body would be failing you if it let you sleep all night or have close personal intimate relationships and you owe somebody else money. Why? Because your amygdala knows that if you get fired from your job or if you get laid off so some corporation can meet their Q3 numbers or you say the wrong political thing in the wrong conversation and you don't have a job and they come take your home. They take your cars. They take everything from you. Your body knows that no matter how good of a deal you got on that sucker, um, you know, seven years, no interest what, on this depreciating asset. We're winning. You're not winning. But your brain knows, dude, mm. you are not okay. Right? So how much money – who do I owe money to? Mm-hmm. How stable is my job? Is it really going to get taken by AI? Is it not? Like, and some of these questions, honestly, you can't answer by yourself. I have a couple of men that I call and say – I think my marriage is not in a great shape. I said this last night. My wife said this. And Kevin Roberts will tell me, yeah, you dummy, you need to uh, go say you're sorry like, right now. <laughs> um, and then sometimes they'll say, you need to go talk to a counselor. Or, no, dude, that's just them being funny. And so sometimes i got to outsource it because I get so emotional so fast because my body seeks to protect me so quickly. That's cool. That's what makes other people or even a, a, a hired therapist important because you can bounce some of this off of. But be very, what's the state of your job? Most people will say, it's killing me. What is the, how many friends do I have that I could call the middle of the night? Not coworkers who would just show up. How many friends? Oh, man. The data tells me not very many. Who am I not telling the truth to? More than we probably like to admit. And on and on and on. So I think you just start writing this stuff down, and it can become very apparent very quick that your body's trying to keep you safe. It's trying to love you, you the best way it knows how. Can you elaborate on the who am I not telling the truth to? line yeah um 
I had a chapter in this book called The Biology of Secrets. And as I started writing it, <laughs> the people who were like the editors who were with me on this were like, yeah, your, your audience is not going to, no, it's too, too nerdy, too boring. So I think mm-hmm. I'll sum it up this way. Um, secrets will kill you. Secrets will kill you full stop. Key secrets will destroy your marriage. Secrets will destroy your relationships, period. And when I say secrets, I don't mean, oh, I voted for Biden and this guy voted for Trump. <laughs> that's called wisdom. I'm just not going to bring that up, right? Or yeah. I voted for Trump and I don't want to tell anybody. I'm just, that's wisdom. Secrets are um, like, I'm really struggling being attracted to you. I am don't want to be intimate with you right now. I'm so tired every time you walk in the door because here's the thing, their body feels you pulling away. They know and they create a story in their head. It becomes cruel. And then they create a story. You create a story and it just works in this weird dance in this loop. Or if you're not telling your boss the truth, or if you're not telling your closest, closest friends, the truth. Um, Often people ask me, how do I know if I'm in an abusive relationship? And I always ask, are there things you can't tell your personal closest friends? And they'll often drop their shoulders and go, yeah. And I'll say, that's, that's, a, that's a blinking red light that there's a problem there, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's secrets. It's not telling the truth. And I, some people say, I'm just keeping a secret. So we'll say, well, I'm not lying. I just dump it all in the same bucket because your body's keeping the score. Yeah. So your editor said, it's too nerdy for you to write about that. And yet that's the question I ask. I feel a little bit attacked uh, by your editor because of my interest. <laughs> well, more Sec- about like the dopamine kicks off and then it begins okay. this. And then I, pr- the- I, I appreciate you taking their side. Um, second of all, the line is, we are only as sick as our secrets. And I think that is something that many of us have lived to experience that if you aren't, and, and I love the question, like if, if, if you're going, am I in an abusive relationship and I can't tell people some of the stuff? Like that's... Yeah, that's a that's a great uh, indicator. Um, okay, so you're saying inventory of your life, ask these hard questions, write it down on a piece of paper. Um, you talk about in the book the idea of you don't need a, I think, meteor plan. Like, yeah. if if there's a catastrophe, if there's like the zombie apocalypse, um, maybe you don't have to have all the details figured out on that. Um, it, what I hear when you're writing about that is, okay, you need to be prepared. You need to talk about all this stuff, but there's some things that are even beyond your body's control and you need to accept that. How do you draw that line of, okay, there's certain things that I don't need to plan for if you know all of Texas turns into a fire and I'm in the middle of it and I've got to fight this fire bomb. Like, I don't need to solve that problem. Right. Um, for me, it's are my four walls covered and do I have an emergency fund and do I have some transferable skills? And some of that is always evolving and some of that's changing a little bit. Some of that's having a group of men in my life who will look at me and go, you don't know how to skin a deer? And I'm like, uh, do y'all all know how to do that? And they were like, yes. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll learn how to do that. All right, so some of it is, <laughs> look at you, Luke. You're like, ah, oh, well. You're like, can't you break down Ezekiel? Ah, <laughs> suckers. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think everybody's got to... Um, kind of find that line for themselves. But I do think if you don't owe anybody any money, you've chosen freedom, right? You don't owe anybody any money. You become your own bank and you have an emergency fund, which at Ramsey we say three to six months, where if I lost my job, I could pay all my bills as is, uh, making the appropriate cuts for six months. Um, Do you and your spouse regularly stay connected? Are you and your kids regularly connected, right? Um, 
I think after that, and are you are you saving for retirement? And I'm not talking about buying crypto and solar panels. I'm talking about are you based on the evidence that we have for the last hundred years? Um, are you putting money away for when you're not going to be able to work someday? Because one day you're not going to either be able to or you're not going to want to. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, um, it was in Abilene, Texas. Uh, unbeknownst to me, my wife had called a friend of mine who works um, for the banking commission. And, man, I was just peppering him with it's all coming down. It's all coming yeah. down. And he finally realized what was going on. And he was like, hey, man, I don't, I don't have a meteorite plan. I was like, yeah. what's that supposed to mean? He goes, bro. If the dollar collapses and we're trading coffee and cigarettes, you're not going to work that day at the university. Um, I think his exact words were, um, your neighbor will be trying to shoot you for your water. So we're going to deal with that world when it happens. Until then, we're going to do the best we can with what we have in front of us. And then we're going to seek beauty and joy because that's about what we got. And so I think there's always somebody, especially in our uh, media ecosystem now, that's trying to drum up our heart rate, drum up our threat response system to get us to buy something or get us to pay attention. And so that means we can always add another deep freezer and we can always add more solar panels and we can always add, okay, jujitsu, now you need to know Muay Thai. And now you got to know how AR-47 works. AR-47, that's not even right. Um, but it's I'll, close. I'll I'm not a gun guy. Texan as I could there. But we're, we're just going to keep going, keep going, and keep going, and keep going. <laughs> Until you're rolling tanks, right, down yeah. down 6th Street in Austin. And it's like, what, dude, what are we doing? And mm-hmm. so I think that we have uh, – we we step over, over $100 bills to pick up nickels. We have people buying um, a third yeah. and fourth deep freezer, and they still have two giant truck payments. Like one of those makes you very, very fragile in a shaky market system. The mm-hmm. other doesn't, right? Yeah. No, that's that's really helpful, uh, and I do think jujitsu is important in case your neighbor tries to steal your dog to eat it. Um, it's just go. a cleaner way, quieter way to dispose of that problem. Uh, let's exactly talk about right. <laughs> let's talk about mindfulness uh, for just a second. I, I loved the section on mindfulness, and one of the things that I found myself peculiarly interested in was recently I, I scrolled across Huberman talking about how prayer, like out loud prayer, works. And I don't know why, like, I've kind of been like pro team Jesus for decades. Like I've talked about it like every Sunday in front of an audience for many years, but hearing Huberman say the science supports, or it's good for me to believe in Jesus or like to pray out loud. That's what he said. Uh, I was like, all right, I feel better now. Like, I don't know why I needed Huberman to say that it was good for him to pray. Um, Is there a psychological response uh, that I need to acknowledge that uh, Huberman... (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite things um, gosh, over the last 15, 20 years has been whenever science comes up with a um, super cutting edge. And by the way, I've got two PhDs. I'm all about the nerd sure. stuff, like science. I'm all in. But one of my favorite things has been sitting in conferences after conferences after conferences, listening to this cutting edge paper that somebody just worked on with their team for 10 years. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was awesome the first time I read it in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, <laughs> right? And so it's it's – um, it is feel it feels validating because the um, the great um, religion of our time is the scientific method, yeah. and so when you have these great um, uh, religious leaders like Huberman out there um, leading the charge with the scientific method, saying no, this thing actually works. It does. It feels good, right? It feels good. Yeah. Um, 
I think we'd have a harder time if he's like, hey, the, the double-blind random-controlled study came back and prayer does not work. That, um, yeah. that kind of sucks. Yeah, um, then we'd have to make down. something up. But Yeah, I'd be thumbs down. But, you know, it does, it, dude, I, I, it's very similar. Very similar. It, felt, it feels awesome to be uh, validated there. Um, but it works. Yeah. It just does. So here's a quote. Uh, it's a Dr. Langer that you're referencing, Ellen Langer. Um, Mindfulness is teaching our brain a different way of learning and living and experiencing the world. If you're going to instruct someone on how to enter into a practice of mindfulness, where are you starting with them so that they can experience that? Tell them to stop. Stop for just a second. And um, before you say the thing, before you act on the thing, before you grab the Twinkie, before you grab the cigarette, before you grab the drink, before you pick up your phone, just for a second stop. Mm -hmm. And if you can get yourself to ask yourself the question, and I, I said that deliberately, if you can get yourself, because it's separate, if you can get yourself to ask you this question, what are we trying to protect ourselves from? Then that's the cornerstone to behavior change. You can, you can, mm -hmm. you can change anything after that when you unautomate the response system. And so I think what Dr. Langer is saying, don't just go to the next thing because we have bodies designed where there was no other thing. You couldn't just fix boredom for all of human history until like 50 years ago. You couldn't just eat apples whenever you wanted to. They only, they only fell from the trees one or two months of, out of the year, right? So all this stuff is new. Can you just stop for a second? Just stop. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, J Dr. Judd Brewer um, says if you can get somebody to do it for a quarter of a second, you've won, right? You've just turned the corner there to get somebody to go, I'm about to – I was about to grab that gummy candy again. I'm going to still grab it, but at least I stopped and said, what are you defending me from, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, by the way, um, here, here's a mindfulness practice that sounds counterintuitive. Before this conversation, um, I was sitting in a private room with a couple whose um, child has um, terminal cancer, four-year-old. It's one of the most harrowing conversations I've ever had in my life, and it was about two hours ago. And um, their kids had made me, they have three young kids, and the four-year-old is the oldest. And they'd made me some, some, some holiday snacks. And um, I walked out of that room, and I went straight into another meeting. And I told the person in that meeting, hey, I just came out of a really hellacious meeting, a, converse, a dark, dark conversation, and this bag is full of gummy candies. I'm going to eat my feelings right now. So continue with your meeting, but I'm going to eat my feelings. That was actual mindful behavior. I know that that is going to cost me later, and I'm not going to sleep as well tonight. I'm going to feel bad about myself. I'm going to feel lethargic and blah. But I made a choice, a mindful choice in the moment to not feel as painful as I was feeling in that, in that moment. That's still mindfulness. You can still be an idiot and do idiotic things and be mindful, right? But it's just pausing before you do mm -hmm. the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So scripture tells us to cast all your cares and anxieties upon God for God cares about you. And sometimes we read um, prayer as a way to just pretend like the anxieties aren't there. Well, I prayed about it. I can let it go. 
And I think you've helped us see anxiety is, is actually, if I can use more of the uh, traditional Christian language for it, like it's a path of discipleship. It's coming aware to what it means to be a good steward with every area of your life. And so instead of prayer being like, hey, I just threw it up to God. Now I'm out of the equation. I'm done. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting seven hours of sleep tonight or eight or nine hours of sleep tonight and having a good diet and eating enough fiber and protein and hydration and taking care of my money, all these things that anxiety tells us about. Um, but instead we see prayer as like pushing us into being good stewards of what we have. Um, how would you describe that? Like if, if what is prayer mindfulness in the more crit- traditional Christian sense doing with our anxiety? Because sometimes, again, it could be just, hey, I'm going to throw it up here and not have to worry about it myself. Well, I think if you look at that, 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 that I feel like that scripture gets pulled out of context because if you look at it holistically, you got people who were taking care of each other's needs. You had people who were doing life together, who lived, who had, they had community, they had, they were sharing food, they had, they had a, a common life they were living together. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, and this is not very popular to say, you can choose anxiety as an identity. Mm-hmm. You can choose to always be stressing and worrying about the next thing. Oh, what about this? What about this? And what about this? We all know that person, and I've been that person where someone's like, man, I'm really feeling good. Um, I quit eating sugar. And then I go... Well, what about fruit? Are you having fruit? Because that's got a lot of sugar in it. And, uh, like, you know, that, that you got to be careful. Like, what's that Bergazzi say? Like, you got to be careful with that fruit. And it's like, good God, dude, just celebrate the person, right? So I take on anxiousness as an identity, and I like to throw it at people. So mm-hmm. I think in a context where you have community, and you're sharing meals together, and no one has a need or want, and then you choose anxiousness, you choose to, to not believe in that's God saying, dude, cast it. Stop. Stop. Yep. And I like the way you phrase that also. Yeah, dude, if I take on, if I choose to live unbiblically, right, I can't be like, well, just make it all go away, dude. That's not anxiety, right? So yep. it points me back in a direction. Um, I think what prayer does is it reminds us for all of human history, people have walked outside of their tent and looked up at the sky and said, Dear God, or some group of gods, please reign, or my family's going to die. Mm-hmm. Prayer, I think, brings us back to a point of submission. Dear God, please help. Dear God, thank you. Because none of this is because of me. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think our bodies, I think that goes into that last chapter about choosing belief, I don't think our bodies were designed to hold up the planet. And all of our psychological theories rest upon or aim towards self-actualization, and I don't think they're whole, at the sinner's holding. Um, the self was never designed to be actualized. Um, we're not designed to hold up the universe. And so prayer brings us back to an appropriate, pla- our appropriate place in the cosmos. Please yeah. help or thank you. I, and I think it, our bodies, literally, when you say thank you, your body just drops. It just, <sighs> right? It's a gift. Yep. Yep. Uh, you reference Rohr a lot in the book, and my listeners know I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr. And uh, he obviously talks about all spirituality is about letting go. And I, you tap into that idea with belief. It's like it's, it's letting go. But obviously, throughout the book, there's also this importance of <clears throat> like taking responsibility and living a life that doesn't create anxiety. Don't live a broken life. While concurrently, like there is this idea of we have to let go. How would you like explain that tension? Um, to me, that has to do with starting lines and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, I exercise on a daily basis, pretty pathologically. I eat pretty well, 
mm-hmm. for this hope that one day I can roll around on the floor with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. I want to be that granddad that their dad, like, granddad, let's go do this. And I'm like, let's do it. And yeah. I can be out there. That is taking um, ownership and responsibility and intentionality. I'm going to show up at work and work really, really hard to serve whoever my customer happens to be. Um, you are going to show up and have spent a week. You, actually, you spent years in graduate school training, years of sitting with mentors and other pastors. Um, and then you're going to work really hard that week to read this text, read the commentary, and then come up with an entertaining slash instructive way to communicate this to the group. That is intentionality. That is stewardship. That is ownership. Uh-huh. Anxiety is I'm also going to hold with an iron fist what happens on the back end. If my church doesn't all come forward and get baptized this Sunday, then they're doomed and I have failed. And that's not true. Yeah. I might just drop dead of a heart attack when I'm 61 years old. Or like our friend, I might get cut off in traffic and it end tragically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so anxiety is trying to hold how this thing wraps up. And we just don't have a say in that. What I can do is give me and my team and my family and my, my church community and my business, whatever we're involved in, give ourselves the best chance to move forward. And then yeah. I got to i got to hold what happens on the end with really open hands. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, I have two really difficult questions I'm going to end with, okay? Uh, On uh, page five of the book, uh, you say we're putting Band-Aids over bullet holes. Page seven of the book, uh, you reference um, Gwen Stefani, and you say it was B-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-S, which we all know is from one of her songs. Uh, the quote from page five, putting Band-Aids over bullet holes, is from a Taylor Swift song. It seems that you didn't give Taylor her love for that quote, but you acknowledge Gwen Stefani. Um, what do you have against Taylor Swift? Um, she just hasn't, she hasn't put the work in like Gwen has. Yeah, yeah. When people think of Taylor, they think of someone who doesn't work hard. Uh, no, good answer. She's, she's worked. She just doesn't have the... She doesn't have the um, oh, no. The you're, taking, you're taking a serious take on this. Oh yeah. no! What? Dude, I'm just a girl. Okay, like Gwen Stefani, uh, she's great. Dare I say, no doubt. Um, she obviously <laughs> is. Um, <laughs> but no, I, can, I, I, I don't. I don't know why I didn't quote. I, I should have put a thing in there, man. See, I, I told you some it, more books if I if I put Taylor Swift name in there. Man, I, I told you, that. it was a hard question. Here's even a harder question. If you go to work at uh, R- Ramsey Solution, what is, what's the company name? Is that right? Ramsey Solutions? Ramsey Solutions. Uh, yeah, there's about a thousand employees here. It's a big old, big old, okay. big old thing. All right. So I, didn't, I didn't know the name. I apologize. Um, sec- okay, if you go there and <laughs> it's... It's dis- Walmart. It's <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if it was discovered that you had a massive credit card addiction or that your PhDs, both of them, were fraudulent. They didn't actually um, speak to what you've earned. Which one would get more problems for you, credit card addiction or that you have fake PhDs? Um, actually, I don't think either of those would be the issue. Um, one of the, like, the core things here is you have to tell the truth. And so it's like written on the wall. And so I think I would get um, – I think the core issue would not be like, well – yeah, the core issue would be that I lied about something. Um, I'm trying to okay. think if if I was telling the truth on both of them, <laughs> it would probably be a bigger deal that I didn't have uh, that I had credit card debt. Probably. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Here's the deal. When I first got here, hey, this was really hard for me. So 
um, when you get a doctorate, like that becomes your identity. Like your name literally changes to sure, sure. Doctor Luke Norsworthy, right? It changes. Um, and so when I got here, I was like, "Hey, well, where did I send my transcripts?" And the HR director, his name's Armando. He's amazing. He's like, uh, "I don't really care. You don't have to, I don't tell you. I don't want them." And yeah. I was like, "I know, but like, I work here. Where do I send these things?" And he was like. <laughs> Yeah, we have already done our due diligence. We really care if you do the job. And I was like, I know, but like, I need someone to have these transcripts because they're my whole identity and world. Please take them. And he's like, I'm not taking them. And so when I now my office, like I have like a cubicle where I write, and so I don't have any place to hang my degrees. It was unmooring for the first six months because I was like, who am I if I'm not this paper on the wall? Mm-hmm. And nobody cares out here what the papers on the wall. They're like, can you help this person who's hurting? And I was like. I don't know. Just look at the paper. I have the paper. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. And um, so I, I, that was tough, man. That was tough. Nobody really cared. Nobody cared. Well, first of all, I'll write a letter to whoever needs to receive that. that they should look at your transcripts <laughs> to validate your identity. And I would uh, ask like, you not to do that. Okay. I, maybe I won't then. No, you can't. Um, you can't. You can't. Maybe I will. Because, um, hey, listen, mis- you didn't know this, but my degrees are not real. They're not real. So <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for outing me here, Luke. Okay. Real well, that, cool, was the whole, that was the whole goal of the podcast. Now I think you'll be less anxious because the truth has come out and <laughs> the truth will set you free. Uh, the book is I great. I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah. I well pulled done. it back full circle. Full, full circle. Um, hey, it's great to connect. Great to meet. We need to hang in person. And Please uh, the book- hang out in Nashville when you're here, brother. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll roll up to uh, Ramsey Solutions and buy you some coffee on my credit card, and uh, we'll have a good time. Do they, Excellent. Do they take anything but cash at the company coffee store? Oh, yeah, they do. Uh, uh, they take debit cards. I will say that uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I did have a Southwest card when I started, like when I was in the um, interview process here. No, mm-hmm. I wasn't even interviewing here. I was coming out to help with a live stream event as like a guest speaker, and yeah. I was buying a Coke out of the out of the cafeteria down here and I had a Southwest card and it wouldn't work. And I was like, what in the world? Oh God, what are you doing? Delon-? So anyway, you can't do that I there. left and got rid of it. Yeah, they it have a metal cool. detector at Ramsey solution and it's not for guns. It's actually for credit cards. If you walk in no, there, they actually have lasers in the parking lot. They just, <laughs> they just incinerate you. As you walk in. They, <laughs> it reads the magnetic strip and you just spontaneously combust. It's really, cool. it is. And like all the conspiracies told us that, that actually is the mark of the beast is having a credit card. Um, <laughs> I feel like someone from your company is going to come kill me now. Um, so I'm going to stop talking, but uh, John, it's been a pleasure. Congrats on the new book, man. Yeah. Hey, thanks for hospitality. And uh, thank you for um, coming to me live from a library and uh, just okay, kind of flexing a little bit on how smart I, you are. That was good. I have books. I, it's my, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to have books in my office. They, I can't just put like a, guitar picture behind me like what is <laughs> <laughs> what is that it's do you just really low self-esteem man <laughs> low self-esteem. i'm just hoping that like, I, i'm still waiting for like metallica to call and be like dude it's your we're calling you up to the big leagues is it has call, that dude, trust me didn't you have like a guitar at your book release thing yeah like, i play again? a lot yeah but i what mean if- it's it's yeah, it's embarrassing. What if I was like, hey, I'm going to show some jujitsu moves uh, at my next speaking gig? <laughs> Dude, tell me. That's actually a very Jonathan Stormont thing to do. To, like, be like, wow. uh, hey, guys, check it out. Do you, yeah. do you, have you done that? Have you done a move on stage yet? No, I've never talked about it. I've, I've, I have had illustrations. I go to a focus group on Thursday, like before every sermon, and I tried it out. And then I just look at like these beautiful, wonderful friends of mine who are at a different stage of life who might be like grandparents. And she's going like, 
uh, what what do you do to people? Um, a rear naked what? I yeah. Don't, I don't... Oh, yeah, I posted a video from a competition, and then one of my dear friends, uh, she's like older than my dad, and uh, she was like, um, I saw the... Um, <laughs> the thing that you do, and uh, it seems uh, it seems very violent. And I was like, um, "God bless you. Uh, I'll see Are you a Bible study." No uh, I do a lot of gi. There's I've only pajama competed. Wrestling? Yeah, I like to pajama. Honestly, yeah. I I was a wrestler in high school, and I thought I'd just do no gi. And then mm-hmm. I started, and I was like, "Yeah, I kind of like gi, but um, I do both." And yeah. haven't competed in no gi yet, but hopefully in January I will. We'll see. Ooh, very cool. Congrats, man. Thanks, dude. You train MMA, right? You yeah, said in the book for a long time. It's been. Uh, I was just trying to touch my toes the other day, and it's it's, it's oh. it goes away fast. <laughs> it goes does it away fast? Yeah, yeah. It does, but it's good. No, it was wow. uh, it was one of the most informative, instructive periods of my time. I I, I think everybody should spend a season doing jujitsu. It's just it's it's transformative. It really is. Yeah, yeah. It it's very humbling. It's hard to be. Here's a hot take. There have been some pastors who are like, oh, macho, like I'm like alpha male pastor. And I'm like, you talk like you're a fighter, but if you actually trained, I don't think you would have that level of hubris because it gets literally choked out of you. The so, greatest gift I ever gave myself, I was a hot-headed, hot-headed, loudmouth idiot. And the greatest gift was just getting regularly humbled um yeah. by guys i outweighed them by 70 pounds and it was so good for me it just gave me so much peace and not in the no i could take care of my no dude it made me a much more humble human being and uh, everybody's got different skills and gifts and you know, I, I i'm really grateful my kids are going to do it um it's just good for you i think it's good yeah uh my kids are not that interested in it and uh Part of jujitsu is like you end up with like weird bruises all over you at any uh-huh. given time. And I was, I had this weird bruise on my shoulder. I was trying to figure out what it was. And then I looked at it and I realized it's a teeth mark from my daughter. She just bit me. And so that's, <laughs> that's her form of martial art. And I was like, oh, that's not jujitsu. That's just being a dad. So anyway, we'll, we'll end on that. Uh, no biting. Don't do that for all my listeners. Definitely thumbs down. Getting John's new book, definitely thumbs up. So uh, go check it out. Thanks, John. I'm grateful for you. Thanks, man. All right, dude.